Thank you, worship team, choir, everyone involved in leading us worship today. What a blessing it is to be with God's people. But as you take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and we'll begin in verse 15. Romans 6, beginning in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, Pastor, in all honesty, it doesn't really matter how I live. I've been saved by grace. I'm not perfect, just forgiven. You know, you can keep all of that obedience and commandment stuff to yourself because all of my sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. So let's just talk about grace. Let's not talk about commandments. Let's not talk about obedience. Let's not talk about holiness. It may surprise you to learn that in my 19 years of ministry, I've heard all of those phrases. I've been told those things. These ideas have been suggested to me. It has actually been stated with a straight face and in all seriousness. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live because I was saved when I was eight years old and all my sins were forgiven. I'm covered by God's grace. So now I just live however I want to live. 
I've been told that. I've been told that by people I confronted with certain sins and immorality and lifestyles and living arrangements that were clearly outside of God's expectations. One in particular wanted to join the church. I wouldn't let them join the church because of their situation. And all they said to me was, well, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. All of these ideas really reflect the same fundamental problem. It's a misunderstanding of the language of grace. It is this idea, all right, well, if I'm, if I'm not saved by any of my works, and if in fact I'm saved by grace, then, then they promote what would be called a hyper-grace or a radical grace, or this idea that because God covers me by His grace, uh, as long as I intellectually, verbally confess to the right stuff, I am covered. I have my fire insurance, and so it doesn't matter what else I do, because I'm set. In fact, it's this abuse, this misunderstanding, you can even use the word perversion of the biblical understanding of grace, that would lead some to say, see, pastor, that's exactly what's wrong with you grace guys. With you guys who say that salvation is by grace alone and faith alone. For those of you who say, again, this has also been suggested to me, those of you who say your works don't save you, that in fact salvation is all of God's work, which is what I absolutely believe. God is the one and only sole cause of salvation. It's not a cooperative effort between me and God. It's not God does 99%. I do a percent. It's all God. As I've stated it somewhat uh, in, in a pithy kind of way, I do the sinning. He does the saving. But this has led some to say, well, the problem with that right there, preachers, that's exactly then where you lead. Your next step then is to, is to have a license, just this, this liberty to sin. And if there's no sense in which obedience uh, is a part of it, that righteousness or holiness is a part of it, then why would anyone bother living a holy life? I mean, if we're covered. If I'm not perfect, just forgiven. then why does it really matter how I live? This is really a fairly common Question, even, even by those of us, you know, who really want to know what does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean? Perhaps we've all found ourselves in this kind of a place where we wonder, all right, so what is the, what is the proper balance here? How do we understand this work of salvation being all God's work, a work of God's grace, that I didn't earn it, uh, I don't cooperate with it, it is what is called, I'm gonna use a fancy word, it is a, it is monergistic and you're thinking, are you crazy, Pastor? You're using that on a Sunday morning. It's Mumfest. What are you talking about? Monergistic, all right? And let me drop another one on you. That means it's not synergistic. I know, we're going crazy here today, okay? In other words, God's work of salvation is His. Mono, one, rather than synergy, a cooperation of the two. I mean, if that's the case then maybe those radical grace guys would be right. Maybe I can just kind of live it up and do what I want. You know, what's interesting is this has always been around. I mean, this kind of challenge to the doctrines of grace, this challenge to the, you know, to, to what is an insistence that salvation is faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. It's been challenged before. In fact, clearly it has been experienced by Paul. Paul was challenged with with debate, uh, with critique of his view of grace. And this really is the essence of chapter 6. 
We've already looked at part of it. The first 14 verses, you know, Paul begins this chapter with the question after he so clearly defined the fact that you and I, not only are we not saved by keeping the law, the only thing the law does is show us just how bad we are. It's not like the law makes me more sinful, but the law makes my sin more obvious. So the more law, the more I see my sin. But Paul comes along and says, not only does the law not make you righteous, the law is, is what reveals your sinfulness. And so the more that the law reveals how sinful you are, the more abounding is God's grace. So Paul clearly dealt with a critic, a guy who's come along and who said, all right, Paul. Well, if sin brings grace and more sin brings more grace then maybe super sin would bring super grace. So why not just sin all the more so grace can abound all the more? Paul answers that in verses 1 through 14 by saying, you've missed the point of the gospel. Uh, that, That can't be right, because here's what the gospel has done. That work of grace has done a transforming work. It is it is taken you from being dead in your sins to alive to God. He uses the imagery of baptism. You've been buried with Christ, crucified with him, buried and raised to walk in newness of life. The old man has been crucified. We noted at the end then of that text where. And then Paul gives the command, so present yourselves not to sin as an instrument or weapon for righteousness. Present yourself to God uh, as a weapon, not, not, not to sin, but present yourself to God as a weapon for the sake of righteousness and obedience. Now look at verse 15. All right, so he won that argument. But now somebody's going to come along with a similar kind of question, but maybe a bit of a different nuance. Rather than saying, well, we should sin more so that we abound more. Now Paul, Paul has received the question, all right, verse 15, what then? And you can tell Paul likes to use that phrase as a as kind of a transitional tag. He uses it throughout the book of Romans. And it kind of shows he's making a logical connection from what he just said to what he's about to say. But he's still changing direction, so to speak. So, so what then shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace. Again, you know, first blush, you think, well, that's kind of the same question. But know that the nuance is a little different. Now Paul has is, is been asked the question, all right, I'm not saying we should super sin so we get super grace. But nonetheless, Paul, you've said we're not under law. We're under grace. So this question is really a question that asks, so why bother restraining myself? I mean, why, why, why not just give in the temptation? Why, I mean, why, what difference does it make? In other words, if I'm not under law, and Paul, you've said the law is condemning, all right? The law condemns, the law comes over you, but you said we're not under that. We're under grace. So why can't I just, well, be under grace? Why, why, why can't I just continue to live in sin? What difference would this make? So again, it's a slightly different question. He's not, he's not encouraging, you know, the, the person debating with him is no longer encouraging folks. We'll go ahead and just sin all the more so you can get more grace. But now he's saying, but you, you've said there's a change in our relationship here. So if I'm under grace, why not sin? So what's Paul's response at the end of verse 15? Certainly not. It's the same thing he did in, in verses 1 and 2. When he asks the question, he responds with certainly not. It is the strongest form of negation. Uh, that you have in in the language, it would be a way of saying, you've lost your mind. Are you crazy? 
Are, are you not working with everything upstairs? In other words, now this is Paul's way of saying it's really strong language, by the way. He's suggesting, look, you're, something's really off, all right? In other words, this possibly can't be a theological premise here. Certainly not. There's no way this could be the case. So now Paul is going to transition. He's still in the same basic framework, really in the framework he started in chapter 5. The two ways, the two paths idea. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. We're either under the law or we're under grace. But now he's going to change the imagery. Now he's going to talk about slavery. And he's going to, he's going to in essence, argue against this assertion. This idea, well, if we're under grace, then we can just sin however we want. Paul is going to clearly argue against those who would claim that salvation by grace leads to unrestrained sin. Once again, this, this kind of reveals an incomplete understanding of the gospel. And so, in verses 15 through 23, I think Paul then lays out for us the truth that the gospel of grace ensures we have freedom to live righteously rather than an obligation to live sinfully. In other words, by using the imagery of slavery, he's going to say, we're no longer slaves of sin, we're now slaves of righteousness. The reason why it doesn't work this way is because there's been a radical transformation. Not just an intellectual assent or a a check mark to say, all right, I believe this, this, and this. The impact of the gospel is radical. Grace isn't just something that saves, it is empowering and transformative. So he's going to argue why this, in fact, can't lead to unrestrained sin. In fact, we are now, as believers, free to live in obedience, righteousness, because God in His grace empowers it. So we're going to, we're going to follow along what are four, four ideas that Paul expresses here. Uh, we'll get to one and maybe a half today, alright? And uh, so if you want to take notes or fill in at least one blank, you'll be able to do it right now. They're on the back of your bulletin if you're interested in doing so. So let's, let's, let's see why is this the case. So Paul, Paul's going to build his argument along four basic ideas. Number one, Paul's first point is kind of his premise. Uh, and this, this is Paul at his logical best. Everyone exists in a condition of slavery, either to sin or to obedience. Everyone, ever, in all of human history, is under one or the other. Everyone who has been, everyone who is being, and everyone who will be. Again, this is where, you know, the biblical worldview is so critical. It's not like we got a hundred different paths or a thousand different paths or five different paths or even three different paths. The Bible is always consistent on this issue. There are two ways, two paths, two options. Just like we saw months ago in Psalm 1 when I came back from sabbatical. And this this is really, you know, I think undergirding much of what Paul does in chapters 5 and 6 and 7. One of two groups. And in this case, he's going to demonstrate we're either under sin, slaves to it, or slaves to obedience. But everyone's a slave to someone. Now, notice how he argues this. Verse verse 16, he begins with another phrase that he's used before. Do you not know? And while it's not necessarily an insult, and it's not necessarily snarky, though Paul's not above being 
snarky. Just read 1 Corinthians. He doesn't mind talking like that. But this is Paul kind of, I don't know, being maybe chastising. In other words, he's saying, don't you understand? I mean, don't you realize? It's almost like he's having the debate with this guy who has said, well, if we're under grace, then we should just continue in sin. Doesn't really matter. If we're not under the law anymore, but under grace, just unrestrained sin should be our way. And he comes along and says, certainly not. Don't you, are, are you ignorant of the fact? It's another way. Some translations actually use that phrase. Are you ignorant of the fact? Don't you know? This is basic. This is theology 101. You've misunderstood the gospel. What, what's the problem? Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Perfectly clear, right? No, I mean, it almost sounds like Paul, I mean, it's almost a bit of a, it feels like a bit like you're running in a bit of a circle here. And maybe that's how it's designed to feel. Now, now notice, notice how Paul uses a familiar phrase. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself? We looked at this phrase two weeks ago. Paul used it in verses 12 through 14, where he said he gives us the first imperative of the book of Romans. And we made that, that distinction that in order to, to, to get this right, you've got to have the indicative before the imperative. You need to know theology in order to have right practice. And so Paul, you know, has built this great theological argument. And at the end of the passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago, he says, so do not do not let sin reign in your bodies. Do not present yourself to sin uh, as an instrument of unrighteousness. Rather, present yourself to God, Uh, present yourself to Christ, present yourself to the gospel to be used as an instrument for righteousness. So that's the same word here. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself? And remember, that word means to offer to the disposal of someone. In other words, it's a yielding act. It's it's almost an act of worship. And I I would argue the word is used that way sometimes in the New Testament. That that I'm to present myself to God. uh, Even as a sacrifice, imagery of the Old Testament. I'm, I'm giving myself, I'm yielding myself, I'm putting my life at His disposal. So Paul is using that same image to say, so whoever you present yourself to, you're that person's slave. Let's stop right there for just a second. This this is where it is so important to get the language right. Because the word slave, when I say that word, Everyone in the room initially has the same thought, right? I mean, you and I can't get out of our own history, right? We hear the word slave, and what do you assume? 1800s, right? Pre-Civil War. We have in our minds, maybe even what we learned in history class, and you know, we learned about the trade coming off of uh, the western coast of Africa and making its way down to the Caribbean and then coming up to the colonies. And we have that image of that, that triangle of trade and slavery where, where, where men and women and children were bought and sold as property. I mean, and when we recognize, I mean, this is obviously, you know, the depths of depravity, the ugliness of humanity almost at its worst in many cases. 
But when the Bible uses the word slave, don't think that. Now, don't misunderstand that. I'm not saying that slavery wouldn't have been a tough life in ancient Rome. It would have been, but it's not quite the same. And here's why this distinction is important. Because when Paul is, is saying, to whom you present yourself as slave, he's talking to a group of people who understood that language. It's estimated that Rome was about 70% slaves and servants. About 70% of the population of Rome was in servitude to somebody else. It was just the nature of economics. And many of them, though some of them were slaves because of war, all right? In other words, they were foreigners uh, that had been captured in battle. They were slaves. Often they were bought and sold. Paul probably isn't thinking that image in mind as much as this one. If you found yourself in a difficult circumstance, an economic hardship... And in ancient Rome, there were a lot of economic hardships. You could find somebody who would be willing to buy you. In other words, you would, in essence, sell yourself into slavery. You would become a servant. Maybe you would find somebody doing a particular kind of trade, or maybe they, you know, were landowners, farmers of some kind. You had some kind of skill you thought you could offer. You would present yourself, present yourself to that individual, and, and maybe there would be an, even a contract, a contract, an agreement set up for a certain amount of time that you would serve as their slave. Now, if that happened, for whatever period of time that was, Make no mistake about it. You were not an employee. You were owned. You were owned. And undoubtedly, as the book of Romans, as this letter would have been read aloud to the congregation there in Rome, read in its entirety, by the way, all 16 chapters would have been read, beginning to end, okay? A lot of you would have been standing. Anyway, all right, so just appreciate how we do things now. I mean, I could have done that, all right? We could do that every week and read 16 chapters of Romans every week. All right, so that, you know, they would, it would have been read aloud. They would have, many of them in the crowd would have been this kind of a person. And even if they weren't, they all understood it. Paul's drawing an analogy here. In fact, you'll notice a little bit later, Paul's even going to say in verse 19, I speak in human terms because of your flesh. In other words, I'm giving you an analogy so you can understand this better. Don't you know that the one you present yourself to, the one that you offer yourself to, the one that you put at another's disposal. So he's talking about this legal binding contract where you agree to be a slave of another. You offer yourself. And that means all rights and privileges associated with your previous life are now given up and given over to the master. Now, then to clarify this, then, so then he says, so to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey. In other words, just to make it really simple, how do you know who's in charge of you? When a certain voice speaks, if you respond to it, that's your master, right? In other words, if we, got, if, we got, if we had a room full of masters and slaves, if one of those masters started barking out orders, guess who obeyed? That master's slaves. The rest of them didn't. 
The rest of them weren't obligated to it. But the one or two or however many were in the room who were, they were the ones who were obligated to it. I could liken it to what would happen uh, in a church setting. I know this is going to shock you. Uh, I, you know, you've heard much of my story. Many of you have. I've raised in church all my life. I've known nothing but this. Nine months before I was born, this has been my life. Uh, church, three times a week. Uh, I was not always cooperative. Shocking. I know. Just go ahead and you're going to have to get a, a new perspective of me. All right. Because now I seem really sweet, nearly angelic. All right. But back then there were. That wasn't supposed to be funny anyway. But back then. Yeah, there were there were issues. So if and, and if, if there was ever a need to be reprimanded. I can promise you. And it did happen. My father. Never had to identify himself, right? My father only had to do one thing. The colonel used the colonel voice. And the son replied, it would have been a room full of sons. But when I heard my father, it was clear. Of course, the difference was when my father spoke, sometimes the other kids started to behave as well. That was just kind of the nature of his authority. I mean, he kind of brought that with him. So when Paul says, the one you present yourself to as a slave is the one you obey because you obey the one that you have enslaved yourself to. In other words, you look at your obedience, look at your lifestyle, look at how you're acting. That will then demonstrate the one who is in charge of you. And so then Paul now draws this out a little bit further, which is which now Paul really does us a great service. It becomes quite profound. The last phrase of verse 16 whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Again, keep in mind, he's asked this like as a rhetorical question. Don't you know, don't you know this? Surely you're not ignorant of the fact that this is how the world works. And notice what Paul does here. And again, I think this is quite profound, maybe because it is so simplified. He's not saying there's all kinds of masters out there. You could be mastered by money. You could be mastered by your lust. You could be mastered by anger. Granted, you may have weaknesses in those areas, but that's not what Paul's saying. There's not a bunch of masters out there. There are two. You're either mastered by sin or you are mastered by obedience. How do I know if I'm mastered by sin or mastered by obedience? Who do I obey? Who do I obey? When I look at my life, when I look at my actions. Now, again, don't misunderstand this. When he says you're either a, a slave to sin, which leads to death. Or you're a slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness. That is shorthand, by the way. Paul's not speaking contradictory statements by saying, all right, you're not saved by your obedience or by your works. In other words, this is this is just another way of saying that the work of the gospel has done something transformative in your life. At least it should have. You've been taken out from under the slavery of sin and you've now been transferred to the mastery of Christ himself. You're, you're now under obedience that should lead to righteousness. And in this case, I think the word righteous is talking about a certain moral, ethical expectation. In other words, it's behavior. Now, now why is Paul doing this? This is a way of Paul countering the initial statement. Well, let's just keep living in sin. 
If we're under grace, then why not just live in sin? Because Paul now, in essence, with this question is saying, because if you continue to do that, if you continue to live a lifestyle of sin, outright disobedience and rebellion toward God, thinking that you're good because you walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or did something at some point that you think was gospel-like, and yet you continue to live a life that's nothing but characterized by selfishness or rebellion or what you want to do or what you want to be without any thought for the work of the gospel in your life, you're not under grace. You're under sin. You're, you're not converted. You, you, haven't, you haven't been transformed by the gospel. So Paul's initial point here is to make it clear. Everybody, everybody exists in a condition Slavery, either to sin or to obedience. Now, I, I know when you hear stuff like this, boy, that, that kind of can get the thoughts going, right? And here's what I love about these particular chapters, 6 and 7 in particular. Because Paul's not unaware of the fact that as believers we still disobey. So again, he's not suggesting here that you are either living in full outright obedience to sin, which means every second, every minute of the day, the only thing you do is real bad stuff. Because you do know there are people with really good reputations. But nonetheless, because they've not submitted to the gospel, are biblically speaking depraved. Dead in their trespasses and sin. If they're they're living in rebellion to the gospel, meaning they've not bowed to Jesus Christ, they've not believed the gospel and trusted in Him and Him alone for salvation, then by definition they are rebels. Rebels to God and to His will. And by definition then are, are under sin. So they don't have to sin as much as they could. In the same way, as a believer in Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that every little thing that I do is always perfect and without sin. Paul's going to make this very clear in chapter 7. There's still an ongoing wrestling with the flesh. We, we even talked about that a few weeks ago. There's still this ongoing temptation that I, I still live in this flesh. I still live in a world that's a fallen world. I still face the very real pressures of temptation. If I didn't face temptation, Paul wouldn't command me to present myself as an instrument of righteousness. Paul wouldn't warn me about presenting myself as an instrument of sin. So again, he's not talking about, you know, absolute perfection here. However, I, do, I think sometimes we soft sell the gospel. I think in this culture, I think in this age, we soft sell the gospel. We, 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 live, we live in a culture that very much wants all the lovey-dovey stuff... But they don't want the command and obedience stuff. And unfortunately, the church has been all too happy then to yield the gospel to that. And so I, I've even heard entire uh, evangelistic emphases being reduced to this. If you want heaven, come forward and say yes to Jesus. That's it. I've, I've, I've heard that as the invitation. Come on forward and just say yes to Jesus. I don't even know what that means. What, what, does that, what does that even mean to say to just say yes to Jesus? Because there's not one verse that says that is the gospel. There's not one verse that says that. There's not even one verse that could be misunderstood to, being, to have said that. Just, just say yes, but this is what we've done. We've shallowed it out. 
This is why the book of Romans is so profound, because it gives us this right gospel. No, no, we're not earning our salvation. We're not even staying saved by doing our own work. This is all God's work of grace. Nonetheless, there is evidence of that work of grace. That is the purpose of the work of grace. Read some of the classic passages on salvation. Ephesians chapter 2. By grace, through faith you have been saved. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God so no man can boast. How does Paul finish that classic statement? That you have been saved unto good works. Good works that were prepared beforehand. Classic passage in Titus chapter 3 where Paul talks about you formerly were, were, were in living in rebellion and disobedience. But then the grace of God appeared. And now you've been regenerated. You've been saved. And then he finishes that up in verse 8 by saying... In order to do good works. This is not an odd way of thinking about things. This is, this is the impact. So, so Paul begins this argument against this idea. Well, you know, I can just do what I want. I'm covered by grace. So I, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. I can do whatever I want. Perhaps the other adage is you don't ask permission, right? Right? It's easier to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. All right? Right? That's what you men do almost all the time. Okay, anyway, but I mean, that's... Sorry to admit that, guys, but we know that's kind of how we organize our lives. All right. So but this is this is not this is not the gospel of grace. This is not what Scripture really teaches. Now, the, the Bible says we're, we're enslaved to somebody. We present ourselves to someone. E- either to sin or to Righteousness. Now, now, so, so next, next week we'll continue on, alright? So we'll cut off the link of sausage right here, wrap that baby up. We'll pick up with the next link next week. But this is an important way to begin to think about this. It does a couple of things. One, you know what this does? This destroys the worn out idea in our culture that people are autonomous. I think it's because, you know, we've got this thing about freedom in our country, right? That's a big deal for us, that we assume then that individuals then are just by nature free to do what they want. It's not true. The person who says, I'm just a free spirit. In fact, the irony is this. The person who says, you know what, I, I don't want Christianity. Christianity is a set of rules and, and I'm, I gotta be free. I gotta chart my own course. I gotta, I, I gotta mow my own path. Alright, I'm gonna do my own thing. I'm my own guy. Nobody, I present myself to myself. Alright? In other words, I'm my own boss. No, you're not. No, you're not. That, that is, that is, that is the essence of foolishness if you think you're actually controlling yourself. The world out there thinks they're autonomous. They think freedom means autonomy, and it does not. You are being controlled by your master, and there's only two. There's sin, and there's grace. Right? There's, there's the fallen flesh, or there's Christ himself. This is it. This is it. These are the only ones. You're a master to one or the other. And the evidence, then, of my life speaks to who that boss may be. So I would encourage you to think as, as we'll, we'll again get get further into this, but but already it forces us to think clearly about the two paths, about the two ways. I mean, when you look at your life, when you when you look at how how you think, how you relate to the world around you, is it that which is consistent with the work of the gospel? I don't mean perfect, but I mean, would you say that your worldview and your actions are 
largely in line with Christ as master? Or is it, you know, you do your own thing how you want, when you want. Hopefully you don't hurt people along the way. And if you ever do, you do some good stuff to make up for the bad stuff. Unfortunately, there's a problem. That means you are a slave to sin. The good news is there is a way out of that. And that is through the grace that's offered to you in Christ Jesus. If there's somebody here today and you've not bent the knee to the gospel. I mean, I can't save you. I can't make this happen. Only the Spirit can do that. But I hope and pray that you would not only come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but that you would bow to the gospel. That, that, it, that in Christ, Christ died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And then when you ask him for forgiveness based, based on what Christ has done, coming to God, confessing your sin, Christ and Christ alone, you can be saved. If you're depending on your own works, then you are a slave to sin. And that will not grant you God's grace and forgiveness. In fact, the Bible is very clear that leads to death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you need salvation, I'll be down front. Maybe you'd want to come and talk more about what that means to know, to, to believe the gospel. But maybe as a believer, see, here's the challenge, and we'll flesh this out later in the text, but here is the challenge, because Paul wouldn't give the command to present myself to righteousness and not present myself to sin if that were not possible as a believer. I would ask you if you'd say, no, I'm saved. Well, then how do you present yourself? To what are you presenting yourself? You'll just look at your life. The evidence of your life will demonstrate it. Is, is it, is it gospel consistent or not? And good news is, is that if you are a believer, you don't have to get saved again. But you may be out of fellowship with God and you can come confessing your sin and as promised, being cleansed of that sin and restored back to fellowship with him. How would you respond to his word today? Let's stand together and I'll pray. And this time will be open to you as we sing, as we think about the goodness of the gospel of God's grace for us. Let's respond as the Spirit would lead. Father God, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for gathering us. We thank you for uh, the opportunity to worship together uh, as we sing and as we give and as we pray and now as we come under your word. And Lord, I, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would bring this truth to bear on our lives, whether those who are here who've, who've never been converted to Christ, that you would do that work, that you can do by your Spirit in convicting of sin, convincing of the truth. For those who are believers, find themselves uh, in a season or period of time or maybe even just in the last few days where, where they have gone back to presenting themselves as slaves to sin. I pray, God, they would know the victory that is still available to them in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we yield ourselves to you, our lives to you, doing us what needs to be done by your word and for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.